Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello again, Connor Stone here with my co-host, Nick Aurora. Say hi, Nick. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great. Yeah. Um, looking forward to the holidays, I guess. Um, yep. Holidays are great. We're recording this before Christmas, but it will be coming out on Christmas Day. So yeah. I hope everyone is uh, having a good Christmas, a safe Christmas, and enjoying the episode. Absolutely, yeah. I think, given the situation, this might be the best time to enjoy these episodes. All right. So, before we get on to the uh, sort of grand history of the Arecibo Observatory, mm-hmm. we should maybe go through a little bit of science news that's been sort of making the rounds this month. Nick, would you like to start us off? Yes. Um, uh, one of the biggest things that... Uh, is newsworthy that has happened in the last couple of weeks is the Chinese lunar mission Chang'e, which is sort of the fifth installment towards building a base on the moon, um, I would say, essentially. Um, So there was a launch on November 23rd, which carried a spacecraft to the moon. And the job, it's a very tight mission, and I quite like how tight this, how small the mission is. It's a 14-day long mission, and one of the biggest things that this mission is doing is for the first time in 40-odd years, it's bringing back samples from the moon. And so, of course, this happened on November 23rd, and we're recording this in the middle of December. And so it has now collected um, a good chunk of um, samples from the moon. I think it weighed in about three and a half kilograms where two and a half kilograms came from the surface of the moon and then it drilled close to two meters into the surface and got half a kilogram worth of soil from that drilled. Um, It's interesting where it's getting that soil from, it's getting these samples from a place on the moon called the the Sea of Storm. Um, It's the reason why um, geologists and people who study the moon find it interesting is because it's dated to be much younger than the moon, presumably because there's an underlying volcano, um, which very recently on the order of a, maybe a billion years or so provided some fresh material. And so to find proper dating of the sample is why Chang'e went there, Chang'e went there and collected samples. So now it's in space, it's in orbit to come back um, to Earth. Um, it has, so there were a couple crucial steps to sort of collect the samples, then launch from the moon attached to the rover that was the orbiter that was orbiting the moon, and then sort of transfer the satellite back into the orbit of the Earth. And all of those have been successful. So it's expected to come back maybe in the next couple of days or so. And it's going to be very exciting once it lands. That is exciting. I hope they make a safe touchdown and... Yeah. 
successfully returned the first chunks of the moon in quite a long time, you said. It's only the third country to ever do that. So it's a pretty cool thing. It's very impressive. In other uh, spaceflight news, SpaceX has recently tested their Starship model serial number eight. And while the flight profile seemed to go fairly well, um, towards the end of the mission, they had a a test to the test mission. They had a bit of a rapid unscheduled disassembly, otherwise known as an explosion. Uh, It didn't, it did not quite stick the landing, Uh, but still very exciting for SpaceX fans. Um, Yeah. And uh, quite an impressive test flight. Yeah. Um, I think Elon Musk sort of did an interview for this and he said the rapid demolition or disassembly was kind of expected. So he wasn't pretty disappointed about it. He, before the mission, he had given it a one in three chance of success. Yeah, yeah. And so more the balance of probability was for something to go wrong. At least they were able to test every step yeah. It didn't blow up halfway through. So that's nice. Yeah, a great thing. Um, yeah, moving forward, uh, one of the rare events that happened um, today, essentially when we're recording it, is a total lunar eclipse, solar eclipse um, in Chile and Argentina. Um, it's, once again, a fairly rare event. And if you were able to catch it either in person, being in either Chile or Argentina or um, on TV, that's pretty cool. Just a reminder, if you're here in Canada, specifically in Kingston, where we are, our next total solar ex- eclipse is going to be in the year 2024, which is not that far away, I would say. So maybe this is a buildup to that, I would say. <laughs> yes, we're, we're very excited for the 2024 eclipse. And yeah. I, we've already even started having discussions about what we're going to do. Exactly. As the, as the Queen's Observatory. Yeah. And I think our final bit of space news will go through kind of quick because by the time you hear this, we'll have already passed through these events. But the Geminids meteor shower occurs in December, and it's one of the best meteor showers of the year. And this year we had a new moon during the meteor shower, which meant that it was pretty spectacular. Uh, lots of great images coming through where people have collected lots of meteor images and stacked them all together. And the Christmas star, or the Great Conjunction, which will occur on uh, December 21st evening, is Jupiter and Saturn both coming so close to each other on the sky that to the unaided eye, they basically just look like one bright star. This is an alignment of the Earth, Jupiter, and Saturn all in a straight line. Is very exciting. Fairly rare. Uh, This won't happen again for 60 years. First time in the last 800 years. Yeah, first time in the last 800 years. There was actually one that occurred only, I think, 400 years ago, somewhere around there. But we couldn't see it because it happened basically behind the sun. (laughs) First time Uh, that we can see. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think that covers our uh, space news segment. And now we should move on to the Arecibo Observatory and some of the great history for this really impressive telescope. So Nick, how about you start us off and tell us about how Arecibo started off? Yeah, Um, so it goes back to 1960s. Um, It's been a 60 year journey for Arecibo. And so in the year 1960 at Cornell University, this guy named William E. Gordon wanted to study the 
ionosphere of the earth, which is essentially sort of the, the high energy particles that are right above the earth's atmosphere. Um, and he wanted to study that. And for that, he proposed to build a telescope. Um, and the ionosphere, that's also what's involved in Northern Lights. Correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how we see the Northern Lights or... So if you've ever gotten to see the beautiful Northern Lights, you have also seen where the ionosphere is. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, it, so the building or the construction started in the year 1960. That was the proposed um, um, sort of use of Arecibo Observatory. It finished in 1963, but by the time it finished, there were other people around the world who study, started to study the ionosphere with much smaller telescopes. So Arecibo is a 350 meter dip in the ground or a sinkhole, a natural sinkhole in the ground in Puerto Rico. And people, people started studying the ionosphere with much smaller uh, radio telescopes, so to say. So that kind of went south for the plan, but because it was such a big uh, observatory or such a big sinkhole and such a big telescope, people very quickly came up with various different uses for um, the equipment that was put on it as the radio telescope. And so it became a very famous telescope very quickly. And over its 60 years or so being operational, it's done quite a few things, including win a Nobel Prize. So yeah, it's, that's, that's essentially exciting. how it started out. It's also quite uh, visually striking yeah. observatory. You, it's sort of situated in the mountains in Puerto Rico, completely surrounded by rainforest and like very natural habitat. But it is quite clearly not a natural phenomenon <laughs> itself with yep. this uh, giant bowl surrounded by three different um, large platforms that hold up very, very strong cables. Yeah. And then this giant 900 ton uh, platform in the center yeah. where it actually records the radio data. Yeah. I think so, one of the remarkable things about the structure of Arecibo and it appeared in Golden Eye, that's the James Bond movie, and Contact, it did a cameo in Contact apparently, is sort of the Gregorian dome that hangs um, off of that 900 ton um, structure that you just talked about, Connor. And so that's the remarkable or sort of the distinguishable thing about um, Arecibo's structure. And initially it wasn't planned to be there. It was put three years after um, the telescope had already been commissioned. Um, and so essentially that Gregorian dome hosts a couple more um, reflectors, so to say, a secondary or a tertiary reflector so that you can focus your um, radio beams very clearly making it one of the state-of-the-art radio dishes that has well, been with, around. With radio, getting, getting good resolution is always a bit tricky Yeah, because uh, the, the wavelength of light that they're looking at sort of compounds the difficulty of getting good resolution when you're trying mm -hmm. to take an image there. Yeah. So the size of Arecibo is one of its huge advantages because it's able to get fairly good resolution, especially in its time. Yeah, absolutely. Not even in its time, even very recently, it was still sort of the go-to telescope 
like you, Connor, you and I use it. We're going to talk about it later. But we indirectly use the data that comes from the Arecibo Observatory. So yeah, it's it's been the state of the art for almost 50 years as a single dome uh, radio observatory or a single dish radio observatory. Um, yeah. All right. So um, it's been around for quite a while. Who who sort of um, has managed it through all this time? Ah, yeah. Um, so as I said, it started with this guy named William E. Gordon at Cornell University. So that's what it was proposed first up. And so Cornell took on most of the funding and most of the management for it. And that continued at one point of time, NASA, because so one of the cool things about um, Arecibo is that it's not just a receiver, it can also transmit radio waves, um, sort of making it one of the unique aspects when it comes to the family of radio telescopes out there. Um, so NASA and SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute joined in as well to sort of work with it. And then finally, very recently, all of the management and funding got transferred to the University of Central Florida. Um, it seems to be is, passed around like a hot potato. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's been quite the equipment. So people wanted to use it as much as they can. And so it went around quite a bit. Now there have been um, a couple people who've been fairly famous, at least in the field of astronomy, who've been directors of um, the Arecibo Observatory. So the first one, of course, the first one is the William E. Gordon, the guy who proposed it. But then in 1966, Frank Drake became the director of um, the Arecibo Observatory. This is, of course, the Drake and, equation. Yeah. Um, and then maybe another one that maybe our listeners don't necessarily know as much, but definitely, Connor, you will know in 1987, Ricardo Giovanelli became the director for a year for observe for the Arecibo Observatory. I yeah. have spent many hours <laughs> pouring through his papers. Yeah. So yeah. yes, I'm quite familiar with Giovanelli. Yeah. So these are a couple of the people maybe that we know of in, in astronomy that have served as directors of the Arecibo Observatory, which is pretty cool, I guess. Yeah. All right. So um, we've talked about Arecibo how it was made and why it was originally made to look at the ionosphere and what it's, what it does is radio observing. Yeah. So perhaps we should talk a little bit about the difference between radio observing and uh, what one immediately thinks of with a telescope, which is really visible observing light. visible light. Yeah, exactly. So I already mentioned that radio waves have a longer wavelength and that makes mm -hmm. it harder to get good resolution. Yeah. And um, so that's one of the challenges of radio observing. One of the advantages sort of follows the same vein is uh, you don't actually have to make your radio dishes at quite the same level of precision as you do for uh, visible light observing. Yeah. Tiny the visible defects. light, yeah, the visible light mirrors go through polishing and they need maintenance. So if we pick up something like CFHT or Gemini telescope, which are both optical or visible light telescopes, their mirrors need to be polished every three or four odd years. Um, whereas once you put in a dome or a dish for radio, it's pretty much good to go. Well, yeah, it's like a satellite dish. If, yeah. uh, if your satellite dish gets a, 
gets hit by a rock or something and gets a little dent in it, yeah. it doesn't really affect your satellite signal too much. Yeah. Similarly, small defects in a radio dish, even for science purposes, are, are fine. And in fact, sometimes radio dishes are more of a wire mesh than actual yeah. like... Which is what um, Arecibo was when Arecibo started out. It was a wire mesh, a 350 meter wide wire mesh. But later on, while thinking about what more or what more valuable science we can do without uh, Arecibo, it was upgraded to be aluminum um, shafts or aluminum rods. And that's how it has been for a very long time. But it started out as a wire mesh. So as far as astronomy is considered, why, why would one look in the radio? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm going to start with galaxies because that's what both you and I do. And so, Connor, you gave an observatory talk a couple of years ago, not a couple of years, even last year, I would say, the, the cookie talk, which has become fairly famous. The cookie talk. Yeah. Um, um, if you want to watch it, this is, of course, a shameless plug, but you can, of course, go on our YouTube channel and watch Connor's cookie talk um, where he eats a cookie, but also talks about fairly important things. And he goes through essentially the elements of the, um, of the universe, where they came from. And one of the more important elements or one of the most abundant elements in the universe is hydrogen, um, which is essentially how everything started. And so when it comes to studying hydrogen in the universe, we can't use radio uh, optical telescopes. Um, we have to use what is called radio telescopes because the light that they emit is very nicely visible in um, radio waves. So if you want to get an idea of how much matter there is in the universe, um, you most likely will be using a radio telescope, barring some clever techniques, but you most likely will be using a radio telescope. Yeah, and being able to look at hydrogen gives you a lot of really important science. Yeah. We actually talk about this a little bit in the podcast with Anantan. So oh. as another shameless plug, <laughs> I say you should uh, go listen to that podcast if you haven't already um, on the ultra-diffuse galaxies. But uh, certainly with radio data, you get a lot of cool information about how much hydrogen is there right. and how fast it's moving, which turns out to be really important uh, for studying uh, galaxies. Yeah. Um, another cool thing is, which, is, which, is, which brings us back to sort of the unique thing about uh, Arecibo, which is its radar capability. So it being able to transmit radio waves. So one thing that you can do is for nearby objects, especially things like the moon or things close by planets like Venus or Mars, you can map their surface using radar. So essentially just bounce radio, off, radio waves off of the surface of these planets and see how long it takes for them to come back. And this is essentially what uh, Arecibo did um, first up uh, in maybe the 1980s where it mapped the surface of Venus using radar technology. So yeah, that's another cool thing that you can do. You can look for exoplanets with the radio telescopes and a lot more. So yeah, it's, it's, it has become one of the top fields when it, in astronomy when it comes to astronomy, but also there is a lot more focus and excitement about it as well as radio astronomy being. And Arecibo was sort of there at the front lines for the yeah, last... 50 years. 
50 years. Yeah, there have been close to 15 to 20 really big discoveries. And we're not, of course, we don't have the time to go through all of them, I would say. But we will go through some of the big ones, um, so to say. But Arecibo has done a lot over its time frame. And over that 50-year time, well, and that 50-year time frame has now, unfortunately, uh, come to an end. So... uh, the reason we're doing this podcast is, of course, as a little bit of a tribute to yeah. Arecibo. So maybe we should mention a little bit about uh, how Arecibo met its end. Yeah. Would you like to sure. lead us off there? A, a sad topic indeed. Um, one thing that happened maybe in the early 2000s is Arecibo lost quite a bit of its funding, which is what led to the move to University of Central Florida. Um, And so for a while, it went to essentially zero funding, which led to the fact that it could not be maintained for as much as it should be, or it could have been. And so in the the early 2010s, um, it got its funding back through NSF, the National Science Foundation, and NASA, and uh, University of Central Florida, of course. And so things started picking up, and Arecibo started becoming more popular again. But it being in Puerto Rico... um, it was very sort of susceptible or prone to hurricanes. And so I think you would have heard quite a few times whenever hurricanes popped up. And in the more recent memory, Hurricane Maria in September 2017 went through Puerto Rico and essentially hurt the Arecibo Observatory quite a bit. So much as well, so much that observing had to be stopped for a while so that repairs could happen. So there was no electricity for the telescope to function. So, uh, and yeah, of course, it's an equipment. And if you don't maintain it, it sort of goes through its natural wear and tear, where at one point of time, it just becomes broken. Yeah. And um, this all sort of came to a head on November 6th. Yeah. uh, When the first cable from the, from the big platform at the center snapped. And this is, this sort of initiated a, a whole community of astronomers uh, watching very anxiously what was going on with Arecibo and of course um, engineers and the the whole team that operates the telescope starting to assess what sort of uh, measures could be taken to fix it and if it was safe enough to do so. So yeah, when we say cables, maybe it's worth emphasizing that these are cables that are strong enough to hold 900 tons of of material so these are not your run-of-the-mill daily cables these are steel cables that are essentially packed tight together and they're close yeah, to i like, think more of like a suspension bridge than exactly um yeah. the cables that you might come across in your everyday life exactly so these are strong cables but yeah everything breaks i guess <laughs> well uh it was one of the original cables that pulled out and there were mm-hmm. still some new cables that had been put in during regular maintenance. And so that first cable swung down and of course caused a bunch of damage, but it was, it was still feasible that this could be fixed. This sort of thing had happened, as you mentioned before, during hurricanes where uh, parts of the dish get damaged and they just have to be put back together. But then, uh, then on November 18th, a second cable snapped and things started to get, a lot more serious because both of these cables had snapped below their sort of rated strength where they right. should have been able to hold no problem. 
Yeah. And finally, on November 19th, the decision was taken by NSF to decommission it, to say that it taking sort of the recommendation of the engineering team, which after these two cables snapped, said that it wasn't safe to even go ahead and fix or maintain the telescope. Um, so on November 19th, the decision was taken to decommission the telescope, which came as a fairly sad news for um, essentially the whole astronomy community. Yeah, and there were there were lots of ideas put around about how they might be able to do the repairs. One idea was um, you could have people working on the telescope, but with a helicopter above mm. with harnesses stretching down to these people so that if the platform fell out underneath them, the helicopter would be able to hold them up. So people really wanted to make this happen, right. but um, all, all things considered, it was just not safe enough to to put people in in, in this sort of platform, which yeah. that, that sort of, that decision was very much validated on December 1st. Yes, when that 900 thing, which is hanging off of those cable, just came down onto the main dish of the telescope, um, essentially leading to the collapse of the telescope and sort of putting it beyond repairs um, in a beyond repair state. So yeah, there's of course videos of it and we're going to put a link in the description as in the podcast description as well for you guys to watch. But that essentially sort of put the nail in the head where Arecibo now is no longer. Yeah. yeah. So now, now the project is really uh, to clean it up and, to think about what might be next for yeah. this site, which is still a really excellent site for mm. potentially building a future telescope. Yeah. But um, I, I think we should end here and for our first segment and yeah. go to break. And when we come back, we will do a proper tribute to Arecibo, talk about some of the big science and talk about uh, sort of some of the radio astronomy going forward that Mm-hmm. Sort of building off of the shoulders of this giant Arecibo. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we'll be back shortly. Hello there. I'm just stopping by to quickly let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and on our website. Links for all of these are in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe. And if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. In the podcast description, you will find links to the McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap program. These are all excellent programs to teach you more about the universe. With that, let's get back to the Arecibo Telescope. And welcome back. So now that we've sort of uh, sufficiently depressed you about how amazing <laughs> Arecibo was and how terrible it was that um, it was sort of destroyed, let's look back and talk about some of the amazing science that Arecibo has done. Obviously, um, hundreds of astronomers have used it over its time period, and it's it's made a lot of people's careers. It's done a whole bunch of frontier science, but we're going to sort of pick out a few highlights for you and give you a sense of the, the range and amazingness of this range and amazing. 
and give you a sense of the sort of range and depth of science that could be done with this telescope. So um, Nick, you've, you've picked out a few of your favorites. Why don't you tell us about um, what Arecibo discovered about Mercury to get yeah. us started? Absolutely. Yeah. So this happened right after the Gregorian dome was put in. Um, so in 1967. So Mercury was thought to sort of go around the sun the same way our moon goes around the earth. So I think it's fairly well known that we only see one side of the moon. And that is just because it's what we call the moon is tightly locked to earth, which is the way it rotates and it, the way it orbits around the earth is the same time period. And so it, if, you've, if you've ever seen, heard someone refer to the dark side of the moon, yeah. it's not actually the side of the moon that's dark. It's the side of the moon that always faces away from us. It's dark um, to us. <laughs> so we, we haven't seen it, or at least we hadn't until yeah. we actually went there and sent people yeah. and machines out to, exactly. out to the moon. Yeah. And so um, Mercury was thought to be the same way, where it was thought that Mercury rotates. So a day on Mercury would be about 88 days, and a year on Mercury is exactly the same amount, 88 days. And so using the radar facility on Merc uh, on Arecibo, rather, uh, it was discovered that Merc that's actually not true um, in the fact that it was found out that the day on Mercury was only 59 days. And it was significant because Mercury's orbit has always been so sort of a challenge in sort of predicting um, sort of how the our solar system behaves because it's so close to the sun, which is so massive, um, what is called gravity starts to behave in unexpected ways, so to say, the general relativistic corrections, essentially, that Einstein came up with are something that needed to be taken care of there. And so finding the rotation period of Mercury was sort of a step forward in um, understanding the orbit of Mercury as well. Yeah, and Mercury, Mercury, as you said, has been known to be an oddball yeah. since even like Newton's times, exactly, where um, they were able to quite easily explain the orbit of just about every planet yeah. except Mercury. Mercury. It just kept being a little bit off from the predictions. Yeah. And for a while, people thought that meant there must be another planet that's sort of changing Mercury's orbit. Vulcan, oh, that's what it was called, right? Vulcan. Vulcan, yeah. yeah. And ultimately, um, it turned out that instead we had gravity wrong. Exactly. And, and we needed Einstein to come in and fix it for us. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so this was sort of a step in actually observing Einstein's theory and sort of moving towards confir confirming what he had predicted. So yeah, that was, and it was almost one of the first big things that Arecibo did. Um, it spent quite a bit of time on Mercury as well. So it's taken the time to actually map ice on both the North and the South Poles of Mercury as well. Now ice on Mercury, which is so close to the sun, might seem surprising to you, but it's most of the time, only one side of the planet faces, or most of the time, just one single part of the planet faces um, the sun. And so there are craters, which essentially create shadows, which cool those parts, which are not looking at the sun down completely, leading to ice. And so that was another thing that Arecibo did with Mercury. Yeah. And that's much more recent. Yeah. That came about maybe in the 80s or the 90s. 1992 was when that happened, the discovery, whereas um, the orbit of Mercury was sort of put 
confirmed in 1967 by Arecibo. Yeah, and the next thing I think, which is the second or maybe among the favorite when it comes to Arecibo's discovery is um, Arecibo discovering the first ever binary pulsar. Um, This is essentially two neutron stars. And if you want to know what neutron stars are, you can go back and listen to our uh, podcast with Akanksha, where we um, sort of interviewed her about the Crab Nebula. But Arecibo was the first telescope to discover two neutron stars orbiting each other. Um, and this was a fairly significant or a landmark discovery because this sort of led to confirming, once again, Einstein's theory of general relativity in the form of gravitational waves. So well before LIGO came in, which was 2015, so like just five years ago, and started discovering or detecting gravitational waves, sort of the indirect signature of um, these gravitational waves was seen by Arecibo when it observed a couple binary pulsars, um, just sort of in the first phases of a merger, so to say. Yeah, so they were, they were still fairly far apart, yeah. but because pulsars are so regular with their signals, mm-hmm. even tiny changes can be detected. And so Arecibo was able to see these minute fluctuations caused by uh, basically losing energy to gravitational waves. So yeah. for many people, uh, gravitational waves had already been sort of established back when that observation was made. Yeah. 1968. Uh, 1968. Yeah. So way, way back before we actually were able to even directly see gravitational waves for ourselves yeah. with observatories like LIGO and Virgo. Yeah. Um, the third thing, and I put it in here, maybe this is not really a discovery and... <laughs> I think it's just because it's fun to talk about it. And if you've ever been to the observatory and you've had a show or a a sort of a talk or interaction with me, you'll hear me talk about aliens quite a bit. And so one of the cool things that um, Arecibo was able to do is was it was able to send out a signal in search of extraterrestrial life. So it just said, hello world, um, encoded towards the Hercules star cluster. Um, and I think that's, that's a fairly cool thing. Um, it's not resulted in anything, I would say, and particularly because Hercules is so far away, the signal's not reached there yet. It'll take a few thousand years. <laughs> yeah, to get um, there. but it was, um, it's still a cool thing that Arecibo did. So I think it was worth mentioning that not only did it play a part in sort of proving what Einstein did, it also has been quintessential or essential in our search for alien life or extraterrestrial life. And that's certainly part of what's made Arecibo such a popular public observatory is uh, the fact that it takes part in events like this where it can use its radar capability, which is mm. it's, until, it, until it was dimensioned, was the strongest radar telescope yeah. uh, in the world, even, even today. Yeah. Um, so that, that really powerful ability let us basically shine messages out into the universe if we wanted to. Yeah. And um, that, that, that wasn't, that radar ability wasn't just for show. As he said, it's what helped us uh, determine the rotation of Mercury. They also um, used that radar capability to not just detect asteroids, but measure where those asteroids are going to be and if they're ever going to collide with Earth. Mm. So yeah. 
uh, Arecibo was very important for detecting potentially hazardous asteroids and sort of being part of our early warning system. Yeah. Good news uh, for anyone interested. We don't know of anything that will collide <laughs> with the Earth uh, within the next hundred years, at least. So, well, you so you're safe, <laughs> at least for the for the objects that we know about. Yeah. Um, and one of those asteroids that Arecibo actually um, measured was, in fact, the asteroid that turned out to be the one that creates the Geminid meteor shower that we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. And uh, the Geminids are special because they're not actually associated with a comet. They're associated with a unusual asteroid that's sort of kind of like a comet and kind of not. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's part of what makes the Geminids special. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can, I think we can just, when it comes to Arecibo, we can just go on and on about how its radar has done some really amazing things. Maybe the last thing I'll mention before we go on to its radio ability is how I think earlier I mentioned how it was able to map the surface of Venus um, using radars. That's because Venus has such a thick atmosphere. Optical telescopes can't really see through that atmosphere. But being Arecibo being a radio transmitter, it was able to just shoot radars onto or radio waves onto Venus and map the whole surface of Venus for future probes that could land on Venus. So I think that was a pretty cool thing. Future unfortunate probes. <laughs> well, it's hot there. So <laughs> as, we, as we mentioned in our uh, phosphine on Venus exactly. episode, it's not a very hospitable environment, even for machines. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it's nice that we can sort of analyze it from afar. You don't want to get too close. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe something both Connor, you and I have been involved in, not involved in, but used on a fairly regular basis is what is called the Alpha Alpha database, which, as we mentioned before, how important for us extragalactic astronomers hydrogen is. And Alpha Alpha essentially is, it started in around the early 2000s and within a period of close to um, six or seven years, it planned to take 25,000 galaxies and measure the amount of hydrogen in every galaxy. And Connor, you and I have used that data set quite often in some way or another, right? Yeah, no, Alfalfa is super useful. I, yeah. I've, I've definitely used it in my research, sort of joining the hundreds or thousands of astronomers that have benefited from Arecibo's yeah. long legacy. Yeah. Maybe I'm not super happy about the acronym, but it's still an important data set. So alfalfa, A-L-F-A, L-F-A. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what that means? Absolutely, sure. Um, it stands for, so it's an acronym within an acronym. So the first alpha stands for Arecibo Legacy Fast Alpha. <laughs> and that second alpha stands for Arecibo L-Band Feed Array. <laughs> so it's it's an acronym within an acronym and it says Arecibo twice yep um which is classic terrible astronomer um, <laughs> acronyms yeah <laughs> maybe we should have a podcast on bad astronomy acronyms at one point in time <laughs> we'd have to do a series of podcasts <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but yeah those have been sort of some of the big things that Arecibo has has done well, maybe we should mention one more that sure. I think everyone's going to be interested in is 
discovery of the first ever exoplanet. Yeah, you're right. Um, so uh, absolutely. Um, Arecibo, as I said, is, a radi- uh, is, is very much into looking into pulsars. And surprisingly enough, the first ever exoplanet was not discovered around a star like our sun, but the first ever exoplanet was discovered around a dead star, um, a pulsar, a neutron star, in the year 1992, where Arecibo was essentially recording how bright a pulsar is or the amount of uh, light or radio waves it gets from a pulsar, and it noticed a dimming. And that's how they discovered the first ever planet around Arecibo. Oh, that pulsar using Arecibo. Yeah, yeah. And since then, more careful observations have sort of revealed that this pulsar has several planets around it. I think three that are known at this point. Yeah, all of these were, all three were discovered by, uh, the whole system essentially was discovered by Arecibo at that point in time. Yeah, so that's been some of the big things that Arecibo has done, but really um, it's only the surface, so to say, of the discovery um, that Arecibo has made. As I said, when I was going through all of the discoveries that Arecibo had made, I had to pick my favorites and I found it fairly hard. I had to really bite my tongue and say, ah, no, maybe not this one because I've already said this one's cool enough. So yeah, it's done, it's done quite a few things in its 50 year span for sure. Yeah, and that's it's quite remarkable considering um, there are a few ways in which Arecibo is a, somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, you can't actually, as, as a telescope, you can't actually point it wherever you want to go. Yeah. You, you only get a very narrow band of the sky that you're able to look at, but it was just so much more powerful than everything else mm. uh, when it was built. And in some ways, up until it was decommissioned, mm. that uh, it was able to do some pretty amazing science, even when it couldn't look Oof. anywhere in the sky that it wanted to. Yeah, it's essentially allowing the sky to move in front of itself. And... Um, observe whatever comes in front of it. Okay, so I think I think everyone is pretty convinced at this point that <laughs> Arecibo can do some pretty amazing science. It's, if you're not, uh, come talk to me, and and I'll convince you even more. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's got a bunch of firsts under its belt, a bunch of bests. Um, it's it's really uh, been been quite an impressive telescope, hmm. but. Um, of course, it, it has been com- decommissioned at this point. Yeah. So maybe we should spend just a bit of time talking about what's next for the radio community. Hmm. Um, what what are they looking forward to uh, yeah. if in a world without Arecibo? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one of the biggest things is there's already sort of an Arecibo-like telescope out there already. It's called FAST. Um, it's in China. And it stands for the 500-meter Aperture Spherical Telescope. Um, so it's even bigger than what Arecibo was. And it's apart from the fact that it does not have a... How am I forgetting the term already? You'll have to cut this out, Connor. Radar. <laughs> apart, apart from the fact that it does not have a radar, um, FAST is going to be sort of the next thing... Um, when it comes to single dish observing um, the same way Arecibo did. Um, There's also the Green Bank Telescope, which is like Arecibo, but has the advantage of being able to move and point to different places in the sky. Um, But I think the big thing which every radio astronomer is talking about um, is the SKA, 
or the square kilometer array, which is going to be radio telescopes essentially for a square kilometer in Australia, in, in a remote place in Australia. And I think that that is something we are, not only the radio astronomy community, but the astronomy community is looking forward to because having so many um, radio telescopes is going to provide us with not only better resolution, but for us being able to do a lot more things when it comes to the early universe science or looking for exoplanets or studying black holes or understanding how stars are formed. Um, and of course, Canada is a big part of it. In fact, I think if I'm not wrong, and maybe Connor, you can cut this out if I'm completely wrong, but Queens is supposed to host, Queens slash RMC is supposed to host a data center um, for the SKA. So all of the crunching of the computation that goes behind it, crunching of the numbers is going to happen here in Canada. So that is one of, if not the big thing in radio astronomy community that we're all looking forward to for sure. Yeah, certainly um, the the legacy of Arecibo is sort of felt in these newer uh, radio telescopes that are sort of going to continue on the tradition, go bigger, go better, and continue mm-hmm. to push sort of the frontiers of science. But um, certain certainly Arecibo is the giant shoulder that these yeah, new these... telescopes are standing on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it sort of paved the path by doing so many discoveries about sort of the strength of radio astronomy as a tool when it comes to understanding the nitty gritty details of the universe, so to say. Yeah, and the universe is so very different when looked through radio that originally people didn't even really know what they were going to be looking at or looking for. And sort of this, this process of creating telescopes, seeing what you can see and then building better telescopes now that you know what you're looking for is, is sort of carrying on um, so Arecibo will be missed, but certainly uh, radio astronomy as a field is is only only booming more with time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is an interesting time to be a radio astronomer for sure, especially with SKA on the horizon. Yeah. Well, I think that sort of wraps up our tribute to Arecibo. Um, unless you have something else to say, Connor. I I think at this point. We've, we've covered what we wanted to cover. So I'm going to say happy holidays yeah. to everyone listening to the podcast. And we'll be back in the new year with more fast radio bursts for you. Absolutely. Thank you, Connor. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.